You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, I don't know how many of uh, you in the room uh, are 90s kids, but uh, I am. Me and my brother, uh, I was born in 85. He was born in 1990, so we are just kind of smack dab in the middle of 90s culture. And if you were a kid in the 90s, you remember that the 90s was kind of the golden age for toydom, right? Like it was pre sort of like gaming culture, like this is like pre-Fortnite, this is when human beings actually played with objects. And uh, you remember bicycles? Like those things existed in the 90s. And so Christmas time was really good to me in, in the 1990s. Like me, me and my brother did well during Christmas. Ghostbusters was a thing back in the day, right? So I had my plasma pack I got for Christmas with the ray gun. Uh, I think a couple years after that, they upgraded me to like a BB gun, pellet gun situation. A couple years after that, uh, I was given a shotgun. I think that was a, actually probably a bad move, Dad. But uh, I, 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 I did well. But 1996 was a, was a particularly interesting year. 96, my parents got us what has now come to be known in hindsight as one of the most dangerous toys on the market. For real. Uh, Actually, this week, I I didn't expect to stumble on one, but I totally did at my friend's house and uh, jacked it from his house. So I brought it to show you. Uh, This is what we got. Now, Now, I know what you're thinking. Harmless. False. First off, he's a monster. We all know this, right? We neglect that, but he is an actual monster. Uh, Second, what happened in 1996 uh, with this guy was literally crazy town. Rosie O'Donnell show. Remember the Rosie O'Donnell show? Rosie O'Donnell gets on her show, and she holds up the Tickle Me Elmo in 96, and she says, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Everybody needs a Tickle Me Elmo. And what happened was everybody believed her. And so all you guys went to the stores and cleaned it out. And so by the time you got to Black Friday of uh, 1996, you couldn't find this guy anymore. This is, a, this is a Christmas miracle that I'm holding him right here. Super, super rare. Elmo got so scarce that every single place, that, look at that, every single uh, store that was carrying him were totally wiped out. Uh, by the time that you got to Black Friday. And people lost their minds, like lost their minds. Uh, there was an incident in Walmart with one of the employees, Robert Waller, I think it was, and, and this guy literally got pulled under a stampede of people who were trying to get their hands on the new shipment of this. He was run over by a group of people. He had a, a, a broken rib. He busted up his jaw, torn hamstring. The, the seat of his pants was ripped out. I don't even know how that works. And he said to reporters, the last thing he remembered before he blacked out was a white Adidas kicking him in the face. For this! For this! Now, why am I, I never thought I'd be holding a Tickle Me Elmo on the stage, by the way. Why am I talking to you about this? Why share that? Because scarcity makes us do crazy things, doesn't it? It makes us crazy. I can't have this up here anymore. All right. All right. I'm just going to do that. Easy. 
It makes us do crazy things. Now, what, you've heard the term scarcity before. Scarcity, we usually we hear it in an economics context. Uh, that word uh, basically means this. It's scarcity is what people experience when their unlimited needs meet limited resources. That's what scarcity is. Unlimited needs meeting limited resources, and now you have scarcity, meaning there's, there's never enough materials, there's never enough goods to satisfy or fulfill the wants or the needs that people bring. And so this creates scarcity, and while scarcity can actually help drive an economy in, in some settings, it can also, in some cases, wreak havoc on people, like in the case of our pantsless friend from Walmart, right? But, but I, I want you to think about this, because this is true, right? When you, th- when you perceive that you lack something, what happens in you? Well, a, cu- a couple things happen, right? One, you, you either tend to become really protective of the stuff that you do have, if it's scarce, right? So some of you from the 90s are still holding up when, in lock and key like your princess die beanie baby because you think you're going to resell it one day because it's worth some... I, newsflash, nobody cares. Nobody wants it. But you're probably holding on to that because it's scarce, right? There's, there's not many of them. So, so you hold on to what you do have, or two, you're relentless to get more of what you don't have, right? Like, just go visit a Kroger the week before a hurricane and try to buy some bottled water. You're, you're not going to find it, right? Because everybody has the same idea you do, which is, I need that, and it's limited. There's scarcity. There's a way that people act and respond to their environment when they have a shortage of something that can be really dangerous for them. Scarcity makes us do crazy things. And in our passage this morning, Jesus is showing us that there is a a type of scarcity that we as people operate out of that actually wreaks havoc on our souls and it also damages those around us. But it's, it's not a material scarcity. It's not like something that we can hold. It's like a, um, like a soul scarcity, if you will. Like we, that we often operate out of an internal lack and it ends up hurting us and others around us. See that? Here's what I mean. Like, do you, do you ever wonder why you're so bitey with certain people? Like, so short with them? Like, like if you ever, especially if you experience uh, critique or negative feedback, you just can't let it roll off your shoulder. You have to move and attack. Like, why, why is that? What, what is that in you? That does, or, or like, why, uh, if you're taken advantage of, do you feel this, like, inquenchable need to settle every score? What is that in our heart that does that? Or like when a person uh, mean-tweeted you online, you physically can't stop thinking about smashing their face because you were slighted, right? And you've got your, your next mean-tweet in queue to send out. Or even this, do you ever wonder why you're so stingy with some people? Like you just can't open up your hand around your resources or your time to bless others. Why am I so protective of my things? All these things are linked, and the link is this soul scarcity and Jesus is going to explain this to us in a way that's really going to surprise us here in the text. What Jesus is doing in these next verses, he's exposing that thing in us by showing us a picture of the opposite. So we're going to look at a picture of of what somebody who isn't operating like that lives like, a life lived not with soul scarcity but with a soul um, surplus, if you will, like an internal wealth 
that actually has the power to free us to live not as takers, but as givers. That's what he's going to be showing us here. That's the main point of this message this morning, is this life under God's rule turns takers into givers. Life under God's rule turns takers into givers. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to prove to us that by confronting us with three massively important questions. I want you to see this. Questions are this. Who has my back? Who meets my needs? And how is this possible? That's sort of the movement. Who has my back? Who meets my needs? And how is this possible? So we'll, we'll look at the first one right now. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. We're in verse 38. Uh, get it out. We're going to be looking at the text a good bit. Uh, it says this, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. We'll stop there. So... Um, we, if, if you've been around for, for the past few weeks, this is, you, you know the pattern. This is the fifth of Jesus' six statements clarifying something. He's clarifying the, the essence of the law, the true meaning of what God is after in us as humans. And if you've been with us, you know that what he's doing here is not critiquing what was written down in the Torah. So he's not going back to the five books of the Old te- first five books of the Old Testament and saying, that's wrong. He's, he's critiquing the, the interpretation of it that the Pharisees were bringing to the table. Not you have read that it was said, but you have heard that it was said. It's what he, they were hearing in their culture. The way the Pharisees were teaching these people to apply this law, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth law, was not what the original meaning was. So in, in Exodus 21, that's where we first get the, that moment. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for life, that, that whole thing. But that moment, if you go back to that context, what was happening in the text was it was applying to the court system. It was applying to judges, how judges were to respond to, uh, to cases that were brought before them. So it wasn't about personal relationships. It was taking place in a courtroom but the pharisees made the command they took it out of the courtroom and they made it interpersonal they said no this is something you need to be thinking about every time you interact with other people but but it wasn't just that not only that but they missed the point the essence of what that law was doing so not only was it the courtroom thing but the point of it was to actually restrain undue retribution, not to create more retribution. It was a statement about the punishment should fit the crime. If I steal a loaf of bread from you, you shouldn't stab me in the stomach, right? That would be an inappropriate exchange, right? The punishment should meet the crime, but the Pharisees didn't see it that way. The Pharisees were teaching it like this. You have the right to settle every score. That's wh- that was the point for the Pharisees. Anytime you're slighted, you can respond in turn with slighting. But do you see what's happened? Do you see, like, it's subtle, right? But they're twisting it. They're twisting the point of the law. It was being hijacked as a license to let everyone who wronged you get what's coming to them. That's what was happening in their day. And Jesus isn't having it. He's not having it. So he goes on. Look at verse 39. But I say to you, so here comes the switch. Here comes what Jesus is going to say. Do not resist the one who is evil. Now, 
again, we've been reading the words of Christ for a while now, and we, we notice this pattern of like hyperbole and provocative language. That's definitely what's happening here, but because it's hyperbolic and provocative, it can definitely be misunderstood. So even when I read that right now, I'm sure in a room of this size, there's some red flags going up, like I don't understand. You need to clarify this, and I, I want to clarify those questions. We're going to get to that. But before we do that, can we just let the bold-faced sentence that he just said sink in? I just, I'm going to say it again because I, I want it to have its effect on us the way it had on them. Just listen to the words of Jesus. This is him saying this over us this morning. Do not resist the one who's evil. Don't resist the one who's evil. Let me... I, how does that hit you? How does that make you feel when you hear that? How does it make you feel? Think about it. Does it make you feel angry? Does it make you feel um, afraid? I, I just want to give you a, a, a good Bible study tip right now. Um, as you're reading the scriptures, it is not the case that good Bible study means that when I come up to a hard text, I have to just squish down all my feelings about the text and just say, yes, Lord, right, and move on. That is not the appropriate way to read the scriptures. When you're studying the scriptures or you're here in the morning or you're by yourself opening your Bible, you need to not just think your way through a text, but you need to feel your way through a text. And then ask the question in these hard passages, why do I feel that? Why, why is that hitting me so sideways? If you start doing that, it will tell you a whole lot about yourself. And Paul tells us in 1 Timothy that we're not just to know our doctrine, but to know ourselves. So we think and we feel our way through the text. Does that hit you sideways? Do not resist the one who is evil? Ask that question this morning and ask why. Okay, I just, I wanted to say that. Now let's deal with some of the um, questions that come up when, when we hear something as provocative as that. There's a lot of questions to deal with. We don't have a lot of time. I'm just going to deal briefly with two of them that might show up uh, right now. Question number one. So is Jesus um, endorsing pacifism? Is that what the point of this text is? That, uh, that no uh, war is okay? That pacifism is, is the um, only appropriate measure for a Christian? Is that what this, the point of the passage is? And I, I would say... No to that. I'll give you two reasons. One, Jesus is clearly addressing interpersonal relationships here. So every illustration he's about to give is about you dealing with another singular human being. So that keeps happening over and over three times in this text. So, so clearly, this isn't about state or national affairs to Jesus, at least in the immediate context. Okay, number two, the Bible gives us over and over clear categories and explicit endorsements even of the role of government right, to protect us, to defend us, to, to execute justice for us. So just go read Romans 13 if you don't believe me. There is a category that the New, the New Testament has for government bringing justice, doing those types of things. So this isn't a text about statecraft or like what is just war. It's not asking those questions per se. This is, this is a text about how your heart collides with other human beings and what happens in that moment. Okay, you see that? Okay, uh, second question that might come up, and I think this one's even more urgent and, and serious to deal with. So is Jesus 
permitting abuse here? I'm just going to read it again. Just listen to it with maybe that, that lens. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Is that what he's doing? Is he, is he giving the green light to that, that we just need to grin and bear it when that happens? Again, no, no. Remember, Jesus regularly uses hyperbolic language to make a point, but not all of his language that he uses is meant to be applied literally. So, uh, for instance, hate your father and mother doesn't mean hate your father and mother. We, we know that, right? Because in other places in the Gospels, he tells us that we should honor our father and mother. What it does mean is your love for your father and mother should look like hate in comparison to your love for me, Right? If, uh, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, does not mean I walk around with a spoon in my pocket ready to scoop my eyeball out when I see a dirty billboard, right? That would be weird. But it does mean that I need to take extreme measures to kill my sin or my sin will kill me. You see that? Hyperbolic language to make a point. In the same way, the language here is meant to invite us to love our neighbor in radical self-sacrificial ways. So Jesus is not saying that if your husband or your boyfriend hits you, that you need to just welcome that like a Christian. He's not saying that. If he's hitting you, ladies, you need to tell someone this morning. You need to make that known now so we can help get you safe. No one in leadership in this church is ever going to tell you otherwise because the Bible doesn't tell you otherwise. Okay? That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is to reveal our heart posture, the heart posture of someone who is in the kingdom of God. And to do that, Jesus uh, uses dramatic illustrations, okay? So there's a, lot, there's a lot more you could say about it, but I'm just gonna say those two things and move on. Are we good? Yes? Okay, we're gonna keep going. Uh, so we're gonna see those three illustrations play out uh, right now. Let's look at the first one, verse 39. He says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. So our scenario is pretty simple. Human slaps human in face. What do you do now? Right? That's, that's the nuts and bolts of it. But there is more here to it than just that. It's not just any old slap, right? It's not just pain coming at you. Notice the words of Jesus. He specifies that this person slaps you on the right cheek. Now, I don't want to make too big a point of this. But just consider for a moment, how does one slap one on the right cheek? Just get a, get a picture in your mind. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to submit that there are two official ways to slap a person on the right cheek. <laughs> Way number one is to raise my left hand and slap him in the face. But that would be weird that, that Jesus would say that because over 90% of earth is right-handed, right? So I doubt he'd be wanting to evoke thoughts of like a left-handed slap. Plus, could, you couldn't really get a good slap in that moment. Way number two, and this is an ancient technique, you deploy your right hand, but instead of using the palm, you use the back. Right? And what they knew back then, we still know now, the backhanded slap is the sauciest of all slaps. <laughs> if you're slapped front-handed, that's one thing, but if you get slapped backhanded, you should go hide in a closet, because that's shameful, <laughs> right? Right? It's a sign of disrespect. This is an insult 
being added to an injury. And Jesus says to us, when insult and injury come, a kingdom person is not someone who retaliates but absorbs it. That's what he's saying. Now how? Well, that gets to the core of our first question. See, Jesus is confronting us with a fundamental question of life. Who has my back? Who do I believe has my back? Who's looking out for me? For my best interest? Who's going to come to my aid when I'm threatened? Who's my defender? And there's two ways that you can answer that question. You can answer that question the way our culture does. So when most people ask themselves the question, who has my back, they answer it this way. I do. Right? I, I have my back. I've got to look out for number one. Otherwise, if I don't look out for me, otherwise I'll be slighted. Right? Otherwise, I'll probably be cheated. Otherwise, I could get hurt. I might lose face or I might become embarrassed. So my job is to protect me. And this is the way most people live most of the time. This is why some of us lose our minds on social media going after somebody who disagrees with us. You ever notice that in yourself? Why, why are some of us so quick to like tear down the person who disagrees with us? Because when you disagree with me, my worldview is now being threatened and I have to defend myself against that. Therefore, I mean tweet, right? It's, it's more serious than that though. Well, this is why so many marriages are falling apart. This is why our marriages are falling. I can't tell you how many times I've been in counseling sessions at this church where the couples are acting toward each other more like mafia members trying to settle a score than children of God. It's the, I know I shouldn't have done that. I know I shouldn't have said that. But you have no idea what she did. You have no idea what she said, what he said. And we are constantly fighting for I. I am my defender in this moment. I defend me because if I don't do it, who else will? But see, the Christian doesn't answer the question that way. When a Christian is asked the question, who has my back? They have a radically different answer. The answer is not I do, but my father does. My father has my back. And listen, as soon as you embrace the fact that your heavenly father is your defender, you're free, y'all. You're free. Why? Because you know something the world doesn't know. You know that every blow to your body and every blow to your ego will either be dealt with by God on that final day of judgment when he settles every score with perfect equity. Or it will be settled at the cross if that person trusts in Jesus. But because it's settled by him, it doesn't have to be settled by you. Do you see that? And we can forgive in light of that. And we can be gracious in light of that. And we can walk in compassion in light of that. that it's like a, a high school freshman who's like, being super bullied the first couple of weeks of school by all the jocks, but he's like super calm about it and peaceful and even loving toward these guys because he knows what they don't know and that's his dad is the head coach, right? 
It's that sort of thing. The person who's a child of the king, they don't have to operate from a place of scarcity, but of surplus. It makes us confident and cool and unshaken when we're belittled, when we're slighted, when we're wounded. We have a, um, it's like we have a reservoir to draw from in us, from God, that the world doesn't have. And it changes how we interact with people. So the first question, who has my back? The answer is, my father does. My father has my back. But here's the second question that Jesus demands that we ask of ourselves, and it's this. Who meets my needs? Who meets my, so not who has my back, not who's my defender, but who is my provider? So Jesus confronts us with that question, and he does it by giving us two illustrations. Let's look at the first, verse 40. And, so he's continuing his argument here, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So now we're dealing uh, with a lawsuit. This is a lawsuit against you, and in this suit, it's your suit that's in jeopardy of not being yours anymore, right? Uh, And to get a, a kind of a context for this, let's understand sort of ancient wardrobe theology. So you have, uh, if you lived back then, you would have worn a handful of things. You would have the loincloth underneath everything, so that's kind of your skimpies, right? Loincloth. Then on top of that, you have your tunic, which is functionally like your shirt. You wear that. And then over all that, you wear your cloak. And your cloak was your outer garment. It was your main and it was your most expensive covering that you have. And then, uh, of course, the belt that holds it together, headdress, sandals, that, that whole thing. And Jesus says here that if a person is trying to take from you your shirt, your tunic, that what it means to not resist the one who's evil is that you're not only to provide him your tunic, but you're to provide him your cloak as well. Now, now, um, again, remember this is hyperbole. That, that Jesus is giving here, but, but don't miss the point. This would have been wild to hear if you were a Jew. It was so important to have your cloak. It's one thing to be sued for your tunic, but it's so important to have your cloak that in Exodus 22, it's actually outlawed that you would be able to take a cloak from a poor person because even the poorest of the poor, the law understood, needed an outer covering like a cloak. That's how important your cloak was to your wardrobe in ancient Israel. And Jesus says, nope, Hand that over to you. Now are you feeling this, this moment? That's, that's illustration one to answer this. Illustration two goes like this, verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Okay, so this is a lot like the, the last one, right? Somebody wanting to take something from you, except this time they're not just wanting to take Uh, something like possessions or valuables or money from you. He wants something that in some ways is even more precious to most of us, and that's this. He wants your time. He wants your energy. That word forces there, if anyone forces you, it's a very rare word in your New Testament. It only appears one other time, and it's when Simon the Cyrene is being forced to carry Jesus' cross with him. Same word here. Someone forces you to go with him one mile, go with him Two. So this isn't just your buddy calling you on the phone to move a couch on a Saturday. That's not, that's not what's happening here. It's bigger than that. It's more intense than that. You're being forced to serve. You're being forced to give your time. And it's in that context that Jesus says, you know what they're demanding you do? Double that. 
That's what a person in the kingdom of God does. They double that. I think, by the way, he gives this illustration here last because for a lot of us, at least for me, it's way easier for me to part with my stuff. But don't you ask me for my time, right? That's, I've got a very limited amount of that. It's scarce. And, and Jesus is saying no to that. He's saying the, the Christian life is lived as someone who isn't just giving possessions and open-handed with their money, but with their time, their energy, their everything. That's what it looks like to be a kingdom person. And we do that because we know the answer to the question, who meets my needs? It's the same answer that it was last time. My father does. My father meets my needs, and therefore I can live like that. My father Guys, your father, if you're in Christ, is the banker of the universe. Scripture says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So yes, I can give up my things because I can count on him to provide for me. He owns everything. So I don't have to hoard anymore. You ever seen that show Hoarders, right? Don't watch. It's the worst show ever. But you should probably watch a little bit of it on YouTube because it's, it's crazy, right? I mean, these people can't let go of anything, and in some cases, it's literally killing them, and the, and the scripture is saying Christians can be free from that. We can be free from hoarding our time or our possessions or even our reputation. We can be free from hoarding that, protecting that. In fact, we can do the opposite. We can live generous lives. That's why he ends with verse 42. Look at verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So now he's taken off all caveats. He's taken it outside of the illustration. This isn't just somebody's wanting to do something bad to you and you're doing something good to them. He's just giving an unequivocal, imperative command. Give. Give. Give to the one who begs from you. Don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have been given a surplus, and so you can live to bless the world. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. Being a child of God affords us the confidence and the supply needed to not be a, a taker anymore, but a giver. So I'm not going to retaliate against you if you wound me. I'm going to work for your good because I have a reservoir in me to draw from that you know nothing about. I'm, I'm not going to countersue you if you want my stuff. T take it all. Take my cloak. Take it. I'm not going to dig in my heels if you're trying to exploit me. I'm going to serve you harder than you wanted me to serve you. And you go, how is this possible? How? And of course, that's the final question that we have to answer. How is, how is that possible? If you're like me, you're hearing this, and you're like, that doesn't sound like you're talking about me, <laughs> right? How is that possible? Well, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, the whole point of the book of Matthew, the whole point of the Bible is to answer that question. How is a life like that even possible? And the answer is, it's possible only as we look to Christ with the eyes of faith and are changed. That's the only way this is possible, as we look to Christ with the eyes of faith and are changed. L listen, um, I need you to hear this. If we're looking only within ourselves for the 
wherewithal to live like this, we will find scarcity. And ourselves is the only place our culture knows where to look. That's the only reference point we have is me. But the message of the gospel, church, is that we need to raise our eyes off of ourselves and on to Jesus. He is our only hope. He's our only hope. Just consider this for a moment. Jesus Christ, the one who invited us to turn the other cheek, endured every abuse for you. Matthew 26, then they spit in his face and they struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is that that struck you? This Jesus the same one who called you to forfeit your garments had his taken for you. John 19, 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. Jesus Christ, the same one who called us to go the extra mile, came to earth to walk every mile in our place. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us if you heard the sermon this morning and you feel like jesus has just read your mail and you're going this is just me if you've been exposed this morning as defensive and graceless and short fused and bitey and ungenerous and always needing to protect yourself and look out for number one if that's you the point of this text is not well then try harder Try. Start working. The point of the text is look to Jesus with the eyes of faith and let him change your heart. He is in the business of heart transplant. He wants to take out that stony heart that's inside of us and give us a tender heart that beats with love for God and love for others. He wants to give us a reservoir of grace to draw from so that we can bless people who curse us. So that we can move toward people who want not our good. That's what he's in the business of doing. And the way he did it is to pay the debt for all our sins so our sins could be removed and replaced with him inside of us. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. That reservoir inside of us is his. It's not ours. And so if we want that, we have to look to him, not ourselves. Jesus has come to do that. So this morning, the invitation is come to the one who gives the soul surplus so that we can become people who aren't takers, but givers. Let's pray. Father, we are... Um, we are exposed in this text. I am. I am um, not all that I want to see. I am stingy with grace. I love to retaliate. I love to make sure 
people who slight me get slighted and gets what's coming to them. And God, I have a feeling I'm in a room full of folks like that. So we're just stopping and we're just saying, we need, we need grace. We need mercy. Please help us, Lord. Be kind to us. I'm gonna invite you where you're at right now, if you're praying, to, um, to just ask God to search your heart and to expose in you blind spots that you might not have seen this morning until maybe the word shed light on them. Would you ask him to, to give you grace to see clearly so you could repent and trust in Jesus? Father, we thank you that you are gracious to forgive us our sin cleanse us from our unrighteousness and, and not just to forgive us but to, to change the constitution of our hearts that we wouldn't have to live with a scarce, scarcity posture and a defensiveness but we could live open handed and Lord, Lord we're eager to have you make those changes in us so give us grace to walk in this truth in Jesus good name Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.